0: So this morning we start a series called Life Together in Community. This is a four-part series and talking about the importance of being in community as a, as a congregation. And also uh, by way of application, I'm going to do the application of the message at the beginning. So we're going to do things a little bit backwards here. We're going to start with application. Application. Um, So as we've been saying, the first major initiative of 2019 is a community group relaunch, and we're happy to announce that we are launching five new community groups in January. And community groups, as we've been saying, are the first step at the Gathering Church in getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. I'll say that again. Community groups are the first step at the Gathering Church in getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. And because of that, our vision as a local church is that every member would be in a community group. Because we see community groups to be the first step in getting our feet on the ground in Christian community, our vision is that every member at the Gathering Church would be in a community group. So here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to ask every community group leader and co-leader and host family to stand. We just want to say thank you. We want to highlight you. We want to put a face to the name, um, which I'm not going to do right now, so I guess we'll do that next week. (laughs) Um, Next week, what we'll be doing, though, for you community group leaders and co-leaders and hosts, families that just stood, we're going to ask you to come forward on January 13th, and the elders would like to lay hands on you and pray for you and commission you and bless you and send you to do this work of leading and co-leading and hosting community groups. So plan on being here next week. Uh, January 13th, if you're not going to be here for some reason, just as an encouragement to appoint somebody else within the group, to be here to be a representative for your group, okay? So we're looking forward to praying for you, commissioning you, sending you, blessing you to do this work. We're grateful as elders, we're grateful as members, we're grateful as deacons to see you doing this kind of work. And we want to highlight something else uh, as, as part of this relaunch process and by way of application, there's two main ways that we get into community groups. There's two main ways that we get into community groups and the reason that I wanted these folks to stand was for you to see them at least even if you haven't put a face with a name yet but the first main way is an organic way to get into community groups and that is by inviting people. And that's by inviting people. So you, community group leaders and co-leaders and hosts, an encouragement to be inviting newcomers, new members into your groups. And also, if you're a new member or a new visitor, feel free to ask those folks that you saw stand out information about their groups. I'm sure they'd be happy to invite you, get you some more information. So that's way number one is the organic way. Way number two is an institutional way to get into community groups. And that is through the Connect Central board, which is now up and running in the Old Chapel. And on that board, there's a list and there's a picture of every community group uh, leader and co-leader on the board. And there's also a map that's showing you where these different community groups are meeting. There'll be someone at that Connect Central at the seven-minute break and after church every Sunday. So any questions that you have about community groups or service opportunities or more information about the church, go to Connect Central. That's your one-stop shop. We even have back there a membership class uh, Booklets, so when you come, you can, you can, you can pre read, read ahead for the membership class if you're interested in joining the church. Any questions that you may have, go to Connect Central. Good? Okay. And I will add, thank you, Chris, uh, we've also redone a big portion of our website. There's a tab that's specifically devoted to community groups, so if you don't do it the organic way or the on Sunday site institutional way, There also is a tab on our website that lists every community group in more detail about what they're going through currently, where they're meeting, uh, and a a Google map that's showing you on the map approximately where these different groups are meeting, a way for you to click and connect with people. So I think we've tried to make every effort we can to to make it so that you can find a community group. If if still you have more questions, you can always email one of the elders, one of the deacons, or email connect at thegatheringchurch.com, and we can get you any information that you may need. Okay, so that's by way of application (laughs) of a text that I haven't even read yet. So this morning we will actually be uh, in this first part of Life Together in Community. We're going to look at the first church, the very first church and the very first description of the first church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 40 to 47. And this is a description of the first church in Jerusalem. This is right after Pentecost. Peter has preached the first Christian sermon. He's called people to repent and believe on Jesus Christ, who's the promised Messiah and rightful King of Israel. And the new community that forms out of that preaching is what we call the church. And this is the very first church in the history of the world, and we have a description of it right here in our Bible. So I'm going to read it to us. And then we'll unpack it and understand some points and principles. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 47. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day... Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. Father, we are challenged and encouraged by this description of the very first Christians and the kind of community that they had. We pray that we would be cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit as these first Christians were and that it would result among us in radical Christian community that there would be awe among us, that there wouldn't be a needy one among us, and that our assembly would be marked as one that is praising God and having favor with all the people. We ask you to do it, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one is that they were together. Point one is they were together. And the following four points. This is a five point sermon. Ah! But it'll be fairly quick. It'll be who came together, when they came together, why they came together, how they came together. Okay? Point one. They were together. I didn't read a couple of verses back, but I'm just going to read verse 37 to you real quick. It says Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall We do, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. So at the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, the result is verse 37, where it says that they were cut to the heart. Or another way that we could put it is that they had new life among them. You know, if we, to, to, to follow the, the illustration and the imagery further down, we could say that it means that God had made an incision in their hearts and had made room for the Holy Spirit to come in. Because the text says to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. So there's spiritual surgery that's going on here, that's attending the preaching that Peter's doing at Pentecost. Their hearts are they 're cut to the heart they 're deeply moved. the Holy Spirit comes into their life, and there 's new life among them. I was um preaching at a funeral about a month ago, and this was a wonderful opportunity that the Lord gave me because it was a, it was a lady uh, who was one of the coaches at the gym that I go to, and she had no affiliation with any Christian church and she I just made one comment, a passing comment. I said, let me know if I can help you in any way. She comes back later and says, I have never heard such an invitation for someone willing to actually come and help with a funeral. And I thought, you don't know what it means for a Christian pastor to be able to go to a funeral full of non-believers and talk about Jesus, but hey. (laughs) But there were three responses. I got up there and I said to her before I came to the funeral, I said, I'm happy to come, I'm happy to give hope, but I only know how to give hope in one way. I only know how to give hope in Jesus Christ. And she said, that's fine, just do that. And there were three responses. There were Christians who were just encouraged that there was a a Christian pastor there that 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 was bringing the message. There were those that were deeply put off by what I said. And there were people that were deeply interested in what I said but didn't understand it. So there was Christians who were happy that the fact that there was a Christian message being preached, there were non-Christians who despised what was being said, and there were non-Christians that were very intrigued by what was being said. I say all that to say, to ask the question, which is actually the answer to this question is the thesis of the whole sermon. How do you know that you have been cut to the heart? Or put it another way, how do we know that a congregation has been cut to the heart? Because what these people saw, this third response, was that they were intrigued by what they saw in all these other people. They were intrigued at the validity of the message, or the content and the grace and the hope of the message, and they were intrigued by what they saw by everybody else in the room that were already Christians. So how do you know that a congregation or a person has been cut to the heart, And the answer that this passage gives is quite wonderful, but it's also very basic in nature. And the answer is simply that you know that a congregation has been cut to the heart because they meet together, because they're together. There's a whole new attitude towards other Christians that can only be explained by supernatural factors, that God is now knitting together a people who otherwise and ordinarily would not be together. So one of the ways, the first way that you see that a congregation or a person has been cut to the heart is that they're meeting with other Christians. In fact, verse 44 says they were together. Now let me press this for a moment. Because down in verse 46, it'll talk about how often they're meeting, that they're meeting in the temple, and and they're meeting day by day, and they're, they're meeting in homes, and that they're meeting every day. They're meeting in the temple, they couldn't get enough of each other, so they kept going back for more, going to other people's homes. These are the kinds of people that just could not get enough of each other, that their regular life was interwoven into each other's lives. But here's the point in verse 44 when it says they were together that life together wasn't so much something they did more it was something that they were life together wasn't so much something they did it's not so much the verse 46 it's not so much that they're in the temple and in people's homes day by day that's a practical outworking of what they already were they were together they were a people that were knit together they were individuals at the start But once they've been cut to the heart, they've now come together to be a people. And what they do as this new people is described for us in the rest of the passage. But the first principle is extremely important. Because what it means to be cut to the heart, first and foremost, is that life together isn't so much as something that they did. Life together is something that they were. Life together is something that they were. It's striking... Throughout the book of Acts, the apostles never say and never have to encourage, why don't you guys come out more often? Now, sure, Hebrews and places like that will say, don't neglect meeting together. But at least in the description that we get of the first church in the book of Acts, as the gospel spreading, the apostles don't have to start pounding on people saying, you guys need to come to more meetings. They're just doing it. It's a natural sign of life. It's an outworking of life already. They don't have to tell them to do it. They don't come together as, they they do come together rather as a response of being cut to the heart, not because of a command, though it is a command to meet together. But these people are coming together and meeting as a response of being cut to the heart. They were hungry for it, they wanted to do it. It was a sign of life. You know, we've got two newborn babies, right? And their natural sign of life is that they cry in the middle of the night. I don't have to tell them to. I don't have to remind them to. I don't have to encourage them to. But hearing crying in the other room is a sign of life. They just naturally do it. And by way of analogy, that's what the Christians in the earliest church were doing. A sign of life is that they were together. Their hearts were woven together. And we know this. We know this principle to be true. A marriage... For example, with life is a marriage of two individuals that love to come together. A marriage that has life is one that loves to embrace one another, that longs to come back together, that when you're separate, you long to rejoin with one another. Or a family, the delight. I have the massive undeserved blessing of having a family that that loves to come together. Coming home in the evening, it's a sign of life when the kids come to the door, either mom coming home or dad coming home. Life and love long to be with each other. And the same is true in the life of a local congregation, of a local church, of a local assembly. Life and love means people longing to be together. Life and love means people longing to be together. So we have to ask ourselves is this sign evident in our own lives? Is this sign evident in our own lives? I think I need to say, to press the point, that if the sign isn't in your life, it may mean that you're not a Christian. If the sign isn't evident in your life, then it may mean that you're not actually a Christian. Or maybe the the sign has diminished, or maybe it's not what you think it should be, and we need to ask God to work it into us. So let's look at these practical applications, these four things, these who, what, when, I don't know what order I'm going to do in them. Who, when, what, how, I think. Because if the sign is not at first evident, we need to work it in. We need to work it in. So let's look at the who to begin with. The who. Now you have to remember that this is a, uh, this is a, a unique Situation in, in snapshot here in the life of, of the church and actually in the life of, uh, of where Pentecost falls because it's coming uh, in the season of a festival. And it's a time when people of all different kinds of backgrounds have gathered in Jerusalem in order to be there for the festival. It says earlier in Acts 2 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. It's a very diverse meeting of people that have gathered together in Jerusalem for the sake of this festival, and that's the place where Peter preaches his first sermon. It says in verses 9 through 11 that there were Parthians, Medes, residents of Mesopotamia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Egypt, parts of Libya, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and so on. So there's all different kinds of people that are gathered here together. And these are the people that hear this first sermon from Peter, and it says that 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. A church that was 120 people has become a church of 3,120 people through the preaching of one message. And it's a preaching to a people that are radically diverse culturally, socially, ethnically, and so on. They're divided by class. We have to assume that these people are divided by class, and they come together. Together, Immediately, they're together in each other's homes. And this is, this is the kind of situation that's kind of coming together that our country longs for right now. And what else can bring people together like this? We try as, as a country to, 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 to unify under political lines and party lines, Republicans and Democrats and so on. And so forth. And we've seen, I think, in the last two years that our division and our separation has become all the more obvious to us yet again. So, what can actually bring all these divided classes and these divided people together? It's not a political line, it's not a party line. A common politic is not what can bring all these different kinds of people together. So, historians have asked over the years how did the first church succeed? How did not only the first church succeed, but how did Christianity start as this tiny religion, this tiny group of people following this, this, this um, vagabond messianic type figure? How did it grow from that in this tiny outpost in the Roman Empire, that's what it was, it's outpost in the Roman Empire. It's not in Rome. It's not, it's not, it's not being led by someone who's of, of pomp and circumstance and of noble birth or so on. It's by this guy who was, who was born to this poor family and it's become the greatest religion in a couple hundred years that the world has ever seen. To the point where most of the Roman Empire was Christian within 300 years. How did that possibly happen? How did it succeed? One of the answers... And maybe the most important answer is that the success of Christianity, as one scholar said, Rodney Stark, the success of Christianity is found in its radical inclusiveness. The success of Christianity is found in its radical inclusiveness. It wasn't the educated only. It wasn't the poor only. It wasn't the weak only. Christianity drew the most simple of people and converted the most elite of people. Some of the smartest minds of men and women that have ever walked the planet were converted by the message of Jesus Christ. It converted the most simple. It converted the most elite. Most of the major competitor religions of the time were for men only. But here you have this Christian religion where women are not only welcome, women are accepted to be active in the ministry. They're to be active in caring for one another. It's remarkable that at the end of Paul's letters, he's commending women who have been of help to him, of service to him, names like Phoebe and so on. That is utterly unheard of in the ancient world. Because Christianity's success, the who, is that it was found in its radical inclusiveness. And here's why. Here's why Christianity was able to be radically inclusive. Because Its founder, Jesus Christ, wasn't just showing the way of salvation, he came to be the one who would accomplish it for his people. He wasn't just saying, let me show you the way to salvation, let me show you the way to a better and greater life. He came to accomplish that life for his people and graciously give it to them by grace through faith. That's how it was radically inclusive. There were nothing that you could do to receive it except just receive it by grace, receive it by faith. It was a message that the world had never heard of, and never seen before. That right standing with God was not based on a ladder that you climbed to get to him, but a ladder that he made to come down to you. And it was embraced by all, the rich, the poor, of every nation, of every tribe, every gender, male and female, every age. Intellectual giants like the Apostle Paul could say to peasants in his letters, I long to be with you. Do we have friends? Do you have friends in the church that you normally wouldn't be friends with? I do. I have people in this church that I normally would not have a normal affinity with. And I have to confess one of my sins here. One of my tendencies that I'm trying to grow in by God's grace, is my tendency is to judge people at the first moment that I meet them and say, ah, that person's, eh, he's not like me or she's not like me. And then God has a way of disciplining me by circling back in a couple weeks or a couple months or maybe a year or two later and I find that I actually have great delight in this person. This person has tasted and seen something of the grace of Jesus Christ. Though they might have inclinations and attitudes and aspirations that are far different from mine, I can look at them and say, I know him. I know her. That's my brother. That's my sister. They've tasted the same thing that I've tasted. They've seen the same thing that I've seen. And God in his grace smites my pride. And shows me that I'm part of a new humanity. A new society that God's kingdom is coming down, that this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off and everyone who calls, who our Lord calls to himself. So that's the who. What did they do, though? The what? What did they do? Well, this is a, there's, there's a lot of ways that we could talk about this. There's 20-part there's, there's sermons series that people do and breaking down this, this section of, of Scripture here, but we'll just unpack a few things. What did they do? Well, first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves to the Word of God. That's the first thing that they did. And eventually, that would come to be the corpus of Scripture that we have now as the New Testament. The very first church, and what the church did 100 years later, what the church does now, is gathers to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. To gather to devote themselves to the Word of God. And by way of just very practical application to circle back. That's why we have community groups. The first and foremost thing that we're doing at community groups is we're devoting ourselves to the Word of God. We're doing it either through memory or reading through the Bible or talking through sermon application questions or simply doing Bible studies themselves. Community groups, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teachings. We're devoting ourselves to the Word of God just like the church did in Jerusalem at the very beginning. Nothing's changed. That's why we commend things to us like Alan and Jenny's doctrine class and Josue's scripture memory class, that we would be devoted to the apostles' teachings. There's no new trick, there's no new gimmick under the sun here. We're simply doing what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. We're embedding, we are studying, we are devoting our hearts, our minds to the apostles' teachings. That's the first thing that they did. The second thing that they did, and I said earlier, is they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They loved each other. Now, one of the things that, one of the ways that we can describe being devoted to the fellowship, one of the ways that we can describe that, is that is the working out of being cut to the heart. That means that it, it takes a certain level of devotion to work this kind of new life in. Like we know this in other 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 scenarios. And new friendships, for example. We know that it takes time when there's that initial common bond or initial affinity. It takes time to work the relationship in. Or we know it for those of us that are married. We know that there's that initial commitment, that initial love. But it takes 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, a lifetime to really work that love in. To really work that life in and that commitment and that love to one another. Well, the same must be true for the church. It shouldn't surprise us that we need to be devoted to the fellowship for that kind of love to begin to continue to, to percolate up in our lives and hearts and minds. And if we're not devoted to the fellowship, radically committed to the local church, radically committed to one another, we shouldn't be surprised when it's not there. It's like my daughters, are, they're, they're, they're learning to bake, they're great young bakers, and they have all these ingredients, and it's almost as if God is saying, here are the ingredients, now work them in. Now massage them into your lives and your, and, your, and your rhythms and your habits and so on. How do we do that? Well, one of the things is that they were honest. They learned to be honest about their sins in ways that they couldn't be honest with anyone else. The world thinks that the way to succeed is to hide your sin and to put your, face, your, first, your best face and first face forward. But someone else who has the gospel whose life has been changed by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, realizes that all their hope, all their significance, all their standing is because God has simply given it to them by grace through faith, they become another kind of safe person. A person that you can actually bear your sins and sorrows with. And begin to actually grow, to truly be naked and unashamed with somebody else. To be welcomed and affirmed, but also to be admonished as as, as necessary. There was a radical interdependency. There was buy in. There was a shared life. There was a common life. Fellowship, the word in the Greek is koinonia, and the description or the, the definition of that term is to express the degree to which we were committed to ex- practical expressions of common life. I'll say that again. The word is used to express the degree to which we were committed or are committed to the practical expressions of common life. That's what it is to have fellowship with one another. To be committed to the practical expressions of common life. The day in, day out. The whoop and wharf. The things of life. So there was buy-in though. I want to add this point because we're, this is somewhat of an aside, but it's important for today. <clears throat> that the way... That one was added into this community, at least at conversion, was through the waters of baptism. It says that in verse 47, they were added to their number daily. If you look back in verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, so those who were baptized received his word, Excuse me. Those who received his word were baptized, and those were added that day, about 3,000 souls. So the connection there is with baptism and being added to the congregation, being added to the fellowship. So baptism is a sign of new life, that you've been buried with Jesus, that you're now raised to new life. And part of that new life is now you're part of this assembly. And today we have the opportunity to baptize someone who's already been part of our assembly. But we're going to baptize Joe Watts. Another part of what they did in being, loving each other and working in this common new life together. It says that there wasn't a needy one among them. That there was a radical, generous, self-giving attitude and display among them that they were selling their goods and possessions as they had need, verse 25. So there wasn't a needy one among them. So devoted to each other, so committed to each other that their practical needs were being met, that there was the selling and the giving of proceeds. How delightful it's been in the last 10 years of this church to see that happen again and again and again to see practical needs being met, to see community groups often being used as the vehicle to do that. I've been part of those community groups where I've seen medical bills been met. I've seen people not able to give their kids Christmas presents, and those needs been met. I've seen scores of needs being met through this church, through the vehicle of the community group so often. So just again, as a gentle encouragement, our vision is that every member of the gathering church would be part of a community group, that we would... devoted to the fellowship that we would exercise that muscle of being devoted to one another and the result of course was a great fear an awe among the people an awe among the people well there's one more thing that they did but I'm going to save it for my close. that's verse 42 that they broke bread but I'm going to save it for my conclusion so that's the who that's the what and let me give you a couple whys. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Well, one reason, one reason is that God's plan for the evangelization of the world is through the local church. And oftentimes, the way that people are converted or they determine the veracity, the truth of Christianity is by looking and seeing the Christian community. When they see, when the watching world sees us being a radical countercultural community, a people of the who, who ordinarily and otherwise wouldn't be affiliated with one another, but are, because of Jesus, who are radically devoted to each other to be devoted to the apostles' teachings and to be devoted to the fellowship with one another, so that practical needs are being met by people who ordinarily wouldn't be together, the world scratches its head and says, What is this? What is this? In fact, Leslie Newbegin, he's a missiologist, he says this, he says, The lives of Christians cause a question from people. The great missionary proclamations in Acts are not given on the unilateral initiative of the apostles, but in response to questions asked by others. Questions that are prompted by the presence of something which calls for an explanation. We'll just break that down real fast. He said... The gospel presentations that happen in the book of Acts, there's 12 or 13 of them. Every single time, it's prompted by a question. Even in, the book of, in, in, in Peter's, Peter's message at Pentecost, what is the meaning of this? And Peter says, well, let me tell you. And he preaches the world's first sermon. But the point is, is that there's something that the world sees that prompts the question because there's the presence of something that calls for an explanation. New Begin goes on. He says, I have come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take into account of seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. He says, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible credible to people? How is it possible that people should come to believe in the power which has the last word in human affairs and is represented by a man who hangs on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we may challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles, Christian literature, conferences, and so on. But I am saying that all these things are secondary and that they have the power to accomplish their, pers- their purpose only as they are rooted in leading people back to a believing, devoted Christian community. You see what New is saying. He said, the, as, a, as a missiologist, as one who's saying all these other campaigns that we do, the distribution of Bibles, the conferences that we do, and so on and so forth. The writing he said, if it doesn't all ultimately point us back to the final hermeneutic of the gospel, which is the Christian congregation, then it's not as effective as it could be. That the final way that people will determine if they should live and see the power of Jesus Christ is by looking at us. That's why we plant churches. That's why we're committed to community groups. That's the first reason. I'll send the second reason out via email. (laughs) I'm going to move us to a conclusion here. We have a baptism to do still. It's getting late. So how do we do this? How do we have... The motivation, how do we have the power? How do we work it in? Well, the answer is there for us in verse 47. It says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And one commentator I read, David Peterson, notes that this comment in verse 47 that they were praising God can be described as the culminating act of everything that they did. That there was great awe among the people. And it reminds us of a quote that we read last week from C.S. Lewis, where he talks about how praising God and delighting in Him and celebrating and displaying the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ is the consummation of our enjoyment of God. That our enjoyment of God isn't actually complete until it's moved us to praise Him and to praise Him together. So, that means brothers and sisters, that our coming together to worship God and praise Him is the culmination of your greatest joy. That your delight and enjoyment of God is incomplete until it's expressed in a corporate kind of praise. Listen to Lewis again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful the other is, that delight is incomplete until it is expressed. This morning, Chris read our call to worship Psalm 34, verse 3, which is my family verse, our marriage verse for Vanessa and I, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And that's what the congregation was doing in the earliest church. They were praising God together. It was the culmination of their joy in God. It was the greatest and highest thing that they did together. They were praising Him. They were enjoying Him. They were delighting Him, which puts us back to the breaking of bread. Do you realize what the breaking of bread is pointing them back to? That they're constantly, and scholars will note, are somewhat divided on this, but... The breaking of bread is attended by an an article in the Greek, which most scholars suggest that they're referring here to the Lord's Supper. Which means that they're pointing back to a broken Savior on a broken cross. Which means that their praise and their daily breaking of bread can praise God that He was broken for them and they weren't broken instead. So that when we gather together and we confess our sin to one another, we can say, Praise God that we have a Savior who took your sin upon you for your sake. Are we saying this morning, I'd never quite thought of, um, Be thou my dignity, and how that ties into Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. That the one who had all dignity, the one who had all esteem and worth, became the broken man of sorrows. So that we can sing, praise God, be thou my dignity, because you were broken and became the man of sorrows for me. Be thou my delight. Be thou my vision. We can say to one another, when, when, we, when we're tempted to sin, we can say, praise the one Who saved you and sanctified you, and who sings over you. So that should cause you to want to live for Him and Him alone. So this morning, as we come to a close, we offer an opportunity to sing to God two more times, praising God, praising Him, because of the table, because of the bread, because of what it points to, because He became the broken Savior so he can be all our delight, all our hope, all our significance. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that we would be this kind of community. Help us now, Lord. Help us now, Lord, to embrace the elements of the table and to praise you for them broken Savior, a weak Savior for a broken, weak people, so that you could rise again on the third day and show yourself to be victorious and powerful, and now we can find our life hid in you. Let us praise you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table. It's open for Christians. We can break the bread together as the church has done for 2,000 years. You can come up row by row, starting from the back. Take the elements back to your seat. And Chris Taylor will lead us in corporate communion. And as soon as we're through with communion, we'll turn around and we'll watch Joe be baptized. And then we'll sing one song together as we go.